Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we are in fellowship. Every time we sin as believers, whether we know it or not, whether we are aware it is sin or not, we are instantly out of fellowship because the righteousness of God cannot have fellowship with a creature that is uh, experientially unrighteous. So therefore God has made a perfect grace provision of confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the instant of confession of sin, we are uh, forgiven, we are recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we can resume our spiritual advance. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have again to worship you through the teaching of your word, that we understand that learning your word and applying it in our lives is the highest form of worship, so nothing is more important for us in our our weekly life than to spend time listening to the teaching of your word, taking it in, understanding it, comprehending it, meditating on it, and letting it sift through our, our, our thought frame of reference so that we can apply the doctrines that we learn in our day-to-day life. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in this nation to gather together, to assemble, and to study your word. We continue to pray for the leadership of this nation, for our president, for those in Congress, those in uh, the cabinet who are involved in organizing, reorganizing, and conducting this war on terrorism, that you would give them wisdom and guidance, that the right information would get to the people who can get the job done, pray for the troops in the field. We pray for the support troops. Pray that you would uh, give them uh, courage in the battlefield, give them wisdom, and we also pray that you would confound the enemy. Now, Father, as we continue our study, we pray that we would be responsive to the teaching of your word, that we might focus, have our attention uh, concentrating on your word this morning, that we might see under the teaching of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, how these things apply in our own lives and our own thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and in these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, we are confronted with, I think, one of the fundamental realities of life for the believer, and that is that there is a profound contrast between the way the unbeliever thinks, the way pagan systems of thought operate, and the way the Christian operates. It is not a matter, as the pagan so often wants to caricature it, as a fact of the Christians just sort of put their mind, their intellect in neutral and quit thinking and just sort of accept things as faith. And that's because the pagan concept of faith is uh, radically different from the uh, scriptural uh, concept of faith. The pagan concept of faith is, is just believing something despite evidence to the contrary, believing something when there is no evidence, just believing it because you uh, want to believe it, believing it for emotional reasons, believing it for prejudicial reasons, whatever the basis might be, it is a different concept of faith than in Scripture. In Scripture, the concept of faith is a faith that operates consistently with thought, consistently with the intellect. It is uh, not predicated upon human viewpoint rationalism or empiricism as we have seen, but it is faith directed toward the revelation of God, that God exists, number one, uh, 
And number two, that God, as the God of the Bible, has chosen to reveal himself to mankind, that he is not a God. It's the God that Christians worship, the God of the Bible, is not some sort of abstract deity. It's not some abstract concept of God or some abstract concept of a creator, but is a concrete concept. And we, I say it's concrete because the Scriptures clearly reveal to us specifics about God, his character, his nature, his plan and purposes for mankind, uh, to a general, in a general sense, how he created the heavens and the earth and the purpose for that creation. There is information given to us in the scriptures that uh, are designed to inform us of that which we cannot learn on our own, that which we cannot discover on the basis of rationalism or empiricism. The other day I happened to read a statement by a humanist writer who, who made the statement that uh, in lack of evidence that there is a God or being able to construct an argument that there is no God, uh, we just have to uh, believe that there uh, isn't a God on the basis of the fact that, that uh, on, on the basis of everything we know, uh, it doesn't seem to be a God. Now, of course, what he leaves out there is the big weakness in that sort of thinking is that the amount of knowledge that man has, even though it may be tremendous, even though with the advent of the computer age and modern age and in terms of the modern 20th century, the storehouse of human knowledge is about uh, maybe a 100 or a 1,000 times greater than it was a 100 years ago. It is still limited knowledge. And when you say that based on everything we know, that leaves an entire, uh, an enormous amount of knowledge that isn't taken into account, that uh, what that statement reveals is that on any day another fact may be discovered that completely invalidates the interpretation of every fact discovered and interpreted uh, by the humanist up to this point. So he is, by, by the very way he formulated his statement, he was admitting that he was vastly ignorant of a tremendous amount of information, but that um, on the basis of limited knowledge, he was asserting dogmatically that there could not be a God. So that, to me, is nothing but the height of arrogance and the height of ignorance, and there's no humility there whatsoever, recognizing that, that there are tremendous amounts of inf- information unavailable to man through either empiricism or rationalism, and therefore uh, just excludes that from the possibility of human knowledge. And that's one of the problems with that underlies much of modern thought. Well, it's not only a problem with modern thought. It was a problem with ancient Greek thought, and that was a problem that, that Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church and is specifically addressing in these first four chapters, and that is the contrast between Uh, human viewpoint knowledge and divine viewpoint knowledge, and that God has revealed things to us. There is specificity in God's revelation, but that this revelation, as we're going to discover in chapter, as we have discovered in chapter 2, is not understandable by unsaved man because he doesn't have all of the equipment to understand it. Nevertheless, God has provided a a provision, a grace provision, so that unsaved man, even though he doesn't have the equipment to understand uh, spiritual things, God is going to supply the, the difference. Now, this doesn't, in Christianity, this doesn't entail some sort of mystical rite, some sort of arcane set of hermeneutics. So often you run into somebody who thinks that, well, you have to jump through this hoop or you have to understand these things before you can really understand Scripture, and they make it very difficult, and it's a, it's, it's a, a very complex system. Or you run into pagan religions like uh, Paul was facing in Corinth, the mystery religions, which were based on some sort of, uh, that in order to enter them you had to have uh, some sort of mystical uh, knowledge, you had to go through some special initiatory rite where there was some sort of encounter with the God uh, who then uh, overpowered you and gave you this mystical experience, and then all of a sudden, on the basis of that, you were uh, you had access to this information. But see, that's all based on man doing something. 
And Scripture says that it's not based on what man does, it's based on what God does. And this is what underlies this whole section in 1 Corinthians. So let's just begin with verse 13 by way of review. And we see in verse 13 the statement, These things we also speak. Now the these things here refers to the these things and the things mentioned as far back as verse 9 and refers to the entire revelation of God, all the information that God has revealed uh, in Old Testament and New Testament. And remember, it's critical for understanding this passage and for interpreting this passage to realize that the quote in verse 9 is a quote from Isaiah. And therefore, whatever is said in this section is applicable to Old Testament believers as well because the Paul is developing the doctrine here from an Old Testament passage which talks about how God has given uh, and revealed certain information to the human race. So he says in verse 13, these things we, that is the apostles, those who were the agents uh, used by the Holy Spirit to reveal the Scriptures, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Now, there's an important concept here, and one I haven't had time to develop fully, but uh, just hit me, correlating some things I'm studying tangentially to this, that when Paul says it's not in words which man's wisdom teaches, he's saying things like uh, the the words that the Scripture uses are not words that that are informed by human viewpoint philosophy. Now, let's take a case in point. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Logos, was the Word, and the Word was with God. And generally speaking, I think Arnold pointed this out when he was here uh, back in March and doing his study on Jewish backgrounds to the Gospels, that the word Logos had a rich meaning in, um, in, in secular Greek philosophy. And I think that John is using the word with all of its meanings. It not only would have significance to to Greek coming out of that background. Remember, John probably wrote this when he is he's an old man. He's about 90 years of age. He's been a pastor in Ephesus, which was an area that was heavily influenced by Greek thought. And that's where he's writing his gospel. But the word logos also had a uh, was a translation of the. Uh, Old uh, Old Testament words for word indicating the revelation of God. And so even though we have a word like logos, which has a rich history in the thought of Plato and Aristotle, when John uses it, he's not using it that way. Point that I am making is that even the, that, that words always imply and and provide with them categories. Every time you see a word, you see concepts like redemption, you see the word logos, you see the word God or deity. That implies a broad category. We think in terms of categories. That's why part of our philosophy of teaching here is to teach categorically, teach in terms of broad subject matters. Whenever you read a passage of Scripture, for example, it touches on a particular subject. It doesn't say everything there is to say about that subject in that verse. So we stop and compare Scripture with Scripture and look at the entire uh, doctrine on that is revealed in the uh, entire Word of God. But those words, every word brings with it sort of cultural baggage, that comes out of the human viewpoint thinking of the surrounding culture, words like logos, for example. But when John uses it, when the Holy Spirit uses it, and Paul uses a number of words this way, he takes it out of that culture, but he redefines it, he restates it, he defines it in terms of God's frame of reference and not in terms of the limited frame of reference of man. So this is what Paul is saying here in verse 13. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches. See, we could also, you could paraphrase that in a sense to say not in categories based on human viewpoint concepts because there's a categorical difference. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul talks about not being taken captive by the elemental things of this world. And the term translated elemental things is the Greek word stoikeia, which has to do with the first principles in Greek philosophy. And if you boil that down, the, the basic concept he's talking about there is don't be taken captive by the categories 
of human viewpoint thinking. That's what stoicheia ultimately refers to is basic categories of thought. So we have to, as believers, we recognize that the way we think, the categories of Scripture are different than the categories of human viewpoint thinking because they have their starting point in God's revelation. God tells us how to think and what to think. God tells us what the, what the proper categories are. That's why there's often such tremendous clash between Christians and non-Christians is because the categories are different. And one of the implications we're going to see from this is in witnessing, that we have to be very careful in the way in which we communicate the gospel and witness to unbelievers, especially if we are engaged. Sometimes when you witness to somebody, it's just a matter of explaining the gospel, and there's no great uh, intellectual problem or difficulty sometimes when you're talking and witnessing with some people that because of their background, their education, they have legitimate questions that need to be asked or at least partially addressed in the course of of, uh, witnessing. It all depends. No two people are going to, uh, no two witnessing situations are going to be the same. That's one of the problems that we'll see in our summary on witnessing is that, that people often have canned approaches. And those canned approaches act, uh, imply that every situation's the same. Everybody's going to respond the same way. And that's just not true. People are going to be different. And so in some cases, it's very simple. Just explain the gospel. That person's ready to hear the gospel. Maybe they've already heard the gospel five or six times. Somebody said that the uh, some survey indicates that the uh, average uh that the unbeliever hears the gospel on average 7.6 times before he responds positively. Now, I heard the gospel one time, so that means there's somebody out there who has to hear the gospel about 15 times before they're going to hear it. And I know a Jewish man down in Houston that I think he's heard the gospel a thousand times, and he still hasn't responded. So there's there's all kinds of things to take into account there, but in the course of... Uh, witnessing to somebody, you might be that person who's giving them the gospel the eighth time, ninth time, tenth time, and that's the one that they're going to respond to. Then again, you may be giving the gospel to that person for the first time, second time, or third time, and they're not going to respond, but it's important for them to hear it in that in that process and that development. But in the process, especially when talking with, with um, uh, unbelievers who are coming out of a of a more intellectual background where they have uh, uh, thoughts that are are a little more profound questions that they're raising it's very very important as believers not to uh, sacrifice our own position in order to try to um, win them to Christ in order to try to convince them of the truth of the scriptures and what I mean by this is that and we'll get into this probably in more detail next next week. But if we're here and you're operating as a believer on divine viewpoint, and that divine viewpoint means that at the root of your of all of your thought is information derived from the Bible, and you're engaged in a conversation with an unbeliever over here who's operating on human viewpoint, rationalism or empiricism or mysticism, and uh, one of these systems is a basis for his thinking, then don't make the mistake of trying to argue to some sort of common ground out here. And and there's historically people try to go to one of uh, three areas of common ground in order to try to convince somebody of the gospel. And the first is in the area of... of, um, We'll look at empiricism first and historical facts as if history is somehow uh, neutral, neutral territory, and, and so we can look at historical facts. And these are approaches that try to use the evidences of Christianity as proofs. And so a typical approach would be to argue perhaps from the empty tomb that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But you see, there are unbelievers. I read an article by a professor at Harvard one time who said, "There's we live in a in a universe when that is dominated by time plus chance." He is an evolutionist, as a Darwinian. You think they operate on a basic principle that the universe is uh, run 
by time plus chance. In an open universe, anything can happen. Any conceivable thing can happen. Just read the National Enquirer sometime when you're standing in line at the grocery store. Anything can happen. And so why should we think it's so so absurd that and a proof of Christ's deity that he rose from the dead? I mean, he rose from the dead, so there was this anomaly in history. So here he was admitting the fact that there was an empty tomb and Christ rose from the dead, but his interpretation of that fact was different because, see, he's interpreting the fact within his human viewpoint grid. And so when you look at, at, at empiricism as somehow being neutral, and you step out as a believer and you say, okay, I'm going to treat this historical fact as a neutral fact, and that ought to convince him, it won't necessarily work. Now, it might have some level of, of, um, of value in convincing somebody who's, who hasn't uh, thought a whole lot, and there are many, you know, most of the folks we, you and I witness to, it's not that they're dumb or they're intellectually stupid, but they're not at the level of, let's say, a philosophy professor from Harvard, and they'll look at the evidence, and that will have a convincing value to them. But nevertheless, when you're talking with some folks who have a certain background, uh, don't compromise by trying to look at history as if it's somehow neutral. Facts aren't neutral. Most facts are interpreted almost instantly by the mind to one degree or another. I look at a, at a fossil, and my immediate interpretation of that fossil is that this is a creature that died in the flood. And I get that interpretation from the Word of God. But an unbeliever who has been indoctrinated in uh, Darwinian evolution is going to look at that fossil and, and automatically look at that and say, well, this fact me is, uh, this, this fossil, that is the fact, is, is uh, 60 million years old and it was uh, laid down in a certain age according to historical geology. See, they're already interpreting the fact. So history isn't neutral. Historical evidences aren't neutral. They're already shaped by the fact that, that fallen man is, is in that position of, of Romans 1 that we'll look at later. He is, he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness as part of denying the existence of God. So then you have a second approach. A second approach sometimes is we try to use reason, autonomous reason. We step outside and we say, well, there's, there's a law in logic. The first rule of logic is what's called the law of of a non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction, and what that means is that A uh, cannot be equal to non-A. Now, I just blew your minds with that. Nobody knows what that means. That means like a statement cannot be true and not true at the same time. You know, you can't say that something is, the sky is blue and the sky is green and both those statements be true in the same way at the same time. You know, that contradicts itself. That's easy for most people to understand. So that's the law of non-contradiction, and that's what underlies all logic. It's what underlies all communication, uh, unless you're a postmodernist, when something can mean 15 different things at the same time and they're all contradictory and, and uh, because it all depends on how you interpret it. But the law of non-contradiction underlies all, all logic. But, see, the unbeliever may frequently and frequently does come back to the believer and says, well, you say that Jesus is both God and man at the same time. That seems to violate the law of non-contradiction. Or what about the Trinity, that God exists in, in uh, three persons in one essence? Seems like you're playing word games there. So they'll raise a question there. So... Uh, the problem here is a methodological problem, and that is that we're using reason independent of God, and we're using experience independent of God, and then there's always the mystical approach where this is what happens with most Christians. They, they always bail out to this for some crazy reason that if they're, they're witnessing to somebody and all else fails, then they say, well, well, you need to believe it because it really, uh, Jesus really made a difference in my life. Well, see, the ultimate truth of Scripture is not based on the fact that Jesus makes a difference in your life. That's pure subjectivity and emotionalism. That is the idea that, that truth is true because it works for me. And see, truth is truth because it has objective reality 
not because it works for you. Anything might work. That's just pure pragmatism and appeals to uh, mankind. So what happens is that we start using re- human reason, we start using human experience, and we start using uh, the the results of Christianity in our lives as if they exist. Here, we'll draw this diagram up here, a triangle for God, if these things exist independently from God. Let's go back to the example of, of autonomous reason. See, if, if, if this passage says what it says is true, that God exists and the God of the Bible exists, then things are what they are because the God of the Bible says so. In other words, reality is defined by God, not by man. God, God as God has revealed to us the way things really are. Now, what happens, that means that God tells us how reason is to be used and how it should not be used. God is the one who gives us the parameters for correctly interpreting our experience. God is the one who gives us the information needed to properly evaluate whatever intuitive insights that we have. But what happens when we appeal to autonomous reason, experience, or mysticism out here, it's as if these things have some sort of abstract life of their own. They're an abstract principle. And what happens there is that we come across sounding as if the God in which we believe is an abstract God. See, that's the God of the pagans. That's the God of the Greeks, just some abstract principle of deity. That's the God of what we might call the God of American history. You know, when we have an event like September 11th and we have a National Prayer Day, who is the God that was prayed to on September the, I think it was September the 14th or 15th when they had the National uh, Memorial Service? That was just some abstract concept of deity. It wasn't the God of the Bible as revealed in the Scriptures. It's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because if it were, you wouldn't have allowed a Muslim to get up there and pray. The prayer to Allah was a prayer to a false god. And so all people do when they talk about God bless America and God bless you is usually just some appeal to some abstract concept of God. And that abstract concept of God is just an idol. That is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not the God of the Bible. And so we have to be careful as believers not to set up in the process of, of witnessing, not to set up these autonomous or independent categories, because that's just following the same methodology of the Greek philosophers that, that Paul's countering in Acts 17 and 18 and Acts and, um, and in 1 Corinthians here. So Paul says, these things we also speak not in words which human viewpoint wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and that is a poor translation. And what we have is a difficult phrase to translate in the Greek. And I'm going to write it up here on the overhead because that will give you some idea of what it looks like uh, in, in the Greek. He uses two words together. First word is uh, pneumaticois. That's P N E U M A T I K O I S. Now, this O I S ending here is a dative ending, but it can be either a dative of a masculine noun or a dative of a neuter noun. Now, that's going to make a difference in how you translate the word. Now, the next word is the same root, but it's pneumatica, T-I-K-A. So it looks very similar. The only difference between the two is the ending. It's referring to the same thing in the alpha ending here, is an accusative uh, neuter uh, plural ending. Now, the verb is synchronomai, which means to combine or join together. Now, the word order in Greek 
doesn't matter because whatever comes first is what's being emphasized, and since it's an inflected language, and that means that words have their meaning and significance within a sentence based upon the, the, the case endings, we don't have anything quite comparable in English except in, in uh, let's say, a pronoun. We talk about he, him, or his. Okay, he is a subject pronoun, nominative. Uh, his is a possessive pronoun, and him is usually a, a dative uh pronoun or direct object pronoun you would you can say he gave his ball to him but none of you would say his gave him ball to he you know you learned that as you were growing up by the time you were about three you were getting past that and you understood that that though that he was a subject would would come in a certain place, and him would come in a certain place. You didn't know the technical gr- grammar, but you understood the difference, and you you hear the difference. Well, in Greek, you have those same kinds of endings, and they indicate things. So, pneumatica as a neuter indicates uh, spiritual words, spiritual concepts. But the dative here can, of, of the first word, so this is the object. As an accusative, it's the object. So you're combining spiritual words or concepts, or probably concepts as a, as a neuter here, spiritual concepts, because that's the direct object of the verb. And then the dative would be, um, have the idea of with or to or some sort of, of, of direction. Now, if it is a, a masculine noun, then the idea would be interpreting spiritual uh, spiritual concepts to spiritual persons because a masculine would imply a person. But if it is a neuter plural, which it probably is, then in, in the in the associative instrumental case, the idea would be combining spiritual concepts with spiritual words. So here we have the idea that God takes certain concepts or ideas that are in the divine thought, and they don't exist abstractly, independently from God, and he's combining them with with human vocabulary. This means that God is capable of communicating to mankind. That's an important principle. See, what happens in, in um, a lot of modern skeptical human viewpoint philosophy is they reject the notion of a communicative God because God somehow is out there and he's totally other and he can't communicate to man. That would not be a God because that would be a God who has limited power. And God, by definition, is omnipotent and is able to communicate. So this, and we get this from this passage that God communicates. He takes his ideas and he's completely capable of putting them in human words so that he can correctly communicate his ideas. Now, he may not communicate everything he knows because God's omniscient and the Bible is clearly a finite book, but what God communicates, it's clear and it's precise, it's lucid, it's understandable, and it's designed to be understood. That is such an important concept. How many times have you run into people when you're witnessing especially, and they'll say, well, you know, I've read the Bible, and I've read the Quran, and I've read the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, they, you know, it can mean anything to anybody. You know, as soon as you say that, as soon as they say that, it makes some sort of absurd response and then make the point that, well, I just reinterpreted If what you said is true, then I interpreted what you said to mean whatever I wanted it to mean. Because, see, nobody can operate on the principle that, that, that it's amazing that intellectuals in our country, pseudo-intellectuals actually, try to make this point that meaning is determined by the hearer and not the one who communicates, not the one who writes, not the one who speaks, because they can't live that way in practice. In fact, they write books expecting you to understand what they write the way they intend it, but in the process they're telling you that you really, that real meaning comes from what you assign to the, to the printed word, not what the author intended. So they can't live, they can't even communicate. The bottom line principle is the person who is rejecting God is at the process, the God of the Bible, is at the process rejecting the ultimate basis for all reason and logic in the universe because that's in the Godhead. It's not some abstract principle. And he has to use reason and logic that come from God in order to refute God. He has to presuppose 
The unbeliever who says there is no God is presupposing the very existence of God to even make the statement there is no God. Now, that's a heavy concept, and you'll be thinking about that for a while. I see a few people going, oh, 9.30 in the morning on a Sunday is just a little rugged for that kind of thought. But, see, that's, that's true, is that to make a statement there is no God uh, implies that there is there is absolute meaning to to words, that when I say there is no God, I am communicating to you, and that implies there's something above either one of us that that gives meaning and significance to that utterance so that it has it has meaning, and that the very words there is no God implies the existence of a logic that never changes throughout all history and time. But, see, the atheist usually operates on the principle that that, that the universe operates on time plus chance. So if chance is a real factor, as they presuppose, then there is a chance that that statement really doesn't mean that in their universe, and it doesn't mean that to me anymore. So to make any kind of statement that has any kind of eternal reality, such as there is no God, you have to presuppose an eternal reality to even give meaning to that utterance. And that can only come from God. Okay, now that I've got everybody, and that's why the Scripture says that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. It's because he has to presuppose the existence of God to even reject God or to talk about God, whether he exists or not. So uh, that'll give you all something to chew on. You'll be listening to this tape three or four or five, six times to work out the logic of that. Now we come to verse 14, which is about where we stopped last time, started going through it in some detail. And it reads, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now we've outlined three basic terms that need to be defined in this verse in order to understand its meaning. First of all, we have to understand what it means to be natural. What is the meaning of a natural man? Second, what is the meaning of the things of the Spirit of God? And third, what is the meaning of spiritually appraised, the term spiritually at the end of the verse? Now, we've gone through this a couple of times, and I just want to review it, a little inculcation to get this in your mind. Use Scripture to compare with Scripture in order to define terms. Don't just jump at things abstractly. See, that's how we're taught. See, so much of our education and our way of thinking is built upon Aristotelian concepts. And see, that's what happens and that's what messes up a lot of people is they immediately start thinking abstractly instead of biblically. So whenever we find a word in Scripture, it has to be defined in context from the Scripture. So the word here that's translated natural is the is the Greek word sukikos, and it is found in one other passage in Scripture, and that's Jude 19. It's not translated natural in Jude 19, though. See, it's not translated consistently, even though that's not a good translation. They don't even, the, the translators of the New American Standard are, are not consistent. So the word there that we find, where we find sukikos, is right there, worldly-minded. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And that is the word that we find here is sukikos for soulish and should be translated that way. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, it's clear from this passage that it is defined by the last phrase, devoid of the Spirit. Sukikos means literally in the Greek, not having Spirit. Now, in the Greek, they do not capitalize words like we do for a proper noun. See, a proper noun is a name like Jesus Christ or Holy Spirit or God. And when you find the word uh, pneuma, you have to define, decide from the context whether that is lowercase spirit or uppercase spirit. And the translators of the New American Standard have made an interpretive decision here, and they have concluded that this is the, the um, Holy Spirit. Now, that could possibly work in, Jude, in the context of Jude because it is talking about unbelievers. But what really makes the difference between unbelievers in all ages and believers is not the possession of the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit at regeneration. And when you compare Jude 19 with 1 Corinthians 2, and the principle I brought in at the beginning that this is, 1 Corinthians 2 is an explanation of an Old Testament passage Whatever is true about Sukikos here has to be true about 
people prior to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended and you have the unique spiritual life of the church age where believers are indwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, believers were not indwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit. So for this statement to be true, it has to apply to an Old Testament believer as well as a church age believer. Therefore, it can't be uppercase S for Holy Spirit. It must be lowercase S for human spirit. It's talking about the difference between the unsaved and the saved. And what makes that difference in all ages is the uh, is regeneration. So we go back to look at 1 Corinthians 2.12, where we read, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, and there I pointed out that spirit of the world there means the thinking of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And this is a unique phrase in this passage because Again and again and again, three times in this passage, but many other times in the New Testament, Paul uses the phrase, the Spirit, I'll just put it in English, Spirit of God. It's just a genitive construction. Tanuma tu theu. Okay, and it's theu, it's that OU that's in the genitive. Now, three times in this passage you have that phrase, tanuma tu theu, but here this one time you have him insert the preposition ek to theu. And that indicates a, a remarkable difference. This preposition ek means from the source of. So he's talking about not merely uh, the spirit who is related to God or who is derived from God, meaning the Holy Spirit, but the spirit, it should be lowercase. We have received something from the source of God, and that is the human spirit, so, because the result of that is that we may know the things freely given to us from God. If this is a, if this is uppercase Holy Spirit, then that would mean that the Old Testament believer didn't have the tools to understand anything revealed in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament believer did not have the Holy Spirit as his teacher. That doesn't come until the church age. Jesus told the disciples in John 16, the, I will send a comfort to, comforted to you who will reveal all things to you and guide you in all truth. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. So if this is talking about um, the Holy Spirit, it introduces a major problem with how anybody in the Old Testament could ever understand spiritual truth. So we have received the spirit, the spirit that should be lowercase spirit. It's the human spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining uh, spiritual concepts with spiritual words. And then back to verse 14, But a natural man does not accept, that is, a soulish man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Now, it goes on to say he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Therefore, in context, because this is comparing an unbeliever with a believer, this the spiritually here must be have to do with the human spirit and not the Holy Spirit. We're talking about basic understanding here. The, the believer has the capacity, first and foremost, to understand spiritual truth because of he is regenerated. Now, we also have the Holy Spirit in order to to communicate and teach to us, but that goes above and beyond what the believer in the Old Testament had. We know this is true from passages like uh, going back into the Old Testament, Genesis 2.17, Adam was warned that the day he ate of the fruit, he would die. Now, he didn't die physically. Something happened, though, that drove a wedge between him and God. He could no longer think as God had taught him to think, and he... Uh, was separated from God, and he hid from God. And so we have, that is what we call spiritual death. Now let's look at the three parts of the, of, of the human being. Adam was created with a human body, a human soul made up of self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition. Now self-consciousness means that when you look in the mirror, you know who you are. When my dog looks in the mirror, she has no clue who she is. There's no such thing as self-consciousness there. There's, when you see the birds come along in the springtime and uh, they see their reflection in, the win- in your uh, uh, window and they start attacking it, see, that indicates they don't have self-consciousness. They think that's another bird and they're involved in a fight. So 
Only mankind in the image of God has self-consciousness. We have a mentality. Mentality is where we think. That is where we remember things. That's where we store uh, doctrine. That's where we store our memories. That's where we develop uh, categories. That's where we develop a frame of reference. That's where we develop vocabulary. All of that is involved in the mentality of the soul. We have a volition. That's where we make choices. We choose what we're going to do, we choose the course of action we're going to take. We choose whether or not to accept the gospel. And we have a conscience, and the conscience is where we store our norms and standards. Unbelievers have one set of norms and standards. It may be relativistic. It may be pragmatic. Uh, it may be based on um, any number of systems. But everybody has a conscience, even, uh, even uh, uh, Stone Age tribes in Erie and Jaya, where they think that the greatest uh, ethical standard is to be able to deceive someone so that they die. And that was true. Uh, we saw the movie a couple of years ago on the peace child, and that was, was true. How do you witness to somebody like that? But, see, Paul argues that the very fact that they have a sense of right and wrong, whether the, even though the rights and the wrongs are distorted, the fact that man has this standard in his soul of right and wrong indicates that, that he knows that there is a God. And then Adam was created with a human spirit. That human spirit enabled the self-consciousness, the mentality, the volition, and the conscious to relate to God, to understand and operate on divine viewpoint. But when Adam disobeyed God, he lost that human spirit. It died. It was no longer functional for Adam. See, we're just not born with it. That's Jude 19. We don't have a human spirit. But with Adam, it just became non-functional. And so in order to be uh, to understand divine truth so that our mentality can operate on the framework of divine viewpoint, there has to be this restoration of the human spirit, and that is called regeneration. God, the Holy Spirit, creates and imparts that human spirit to us at the instant of salvation. That's Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that man is divided into these segments. There's a lot of debate on it, but it's clear from two passages that soul and spirit are distinct. They work, as I showed you in that diagram, they, they, they interface so closely that it's like a hand in a glove. And in fact, I think we're using that analogy in uh, prep school to teach this to the kids. When you have a hand inside of a glove, when the hand operates, the gloves operate. When the glove moves, the hand moves. They are, for all practical purposes, a, a, an indistinguishable unity. And yet they serve two different functions. And you can speak of the, the unity by either talking about the hand or by talking about the glove. But because they're united, either term will talk about both terms. In some passages in Scripture that way, they'll talk about the spirit, but it incl it's including the soul. It's talking about both. We may talk about the soul of a man, and it's talking about both the soul and the spirit. Sometimes the word spirit is used just to refer to the soul or the soul of the spirit. But in two key passages, the Scriptures distinguish between the two, that even though for functional purposes they operate indivisibly, they are distinguished by the Word of God. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may, you, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So that emphasizes this threefold uh, distinction. Now we go on. And we learn, we develop from what we've studied so far that there is a unique learning process that God gives every believer in order to understand truth. And we derive it from this passage. And I've called this the grace learning spiral because it's based on grace. God gives this ability to every believer at the instant of salvation. It comes with the uh, human spirit, and in the church age, it is energized by the Holy Spirit. It's true for every believer, so your ability to learn the Word is not based upon uh, your education. It's not based upon IQ. It's not based upon any other human factor. It's based upon this principle. And so this 
is true for every believer. This mechanic is true for every believer, and we have to understand this. So even though you don't, you may find something difficult to understand today, that's okay. After you hear it 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 times, it will become clear to you. This doesn't mean that every doctrine is instantly clear in its totality to you as soon as you hear it. There are many things that I have studied for many years and still don't have a great handle on, but that doesn't mean I can't understand it. Under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, I will be able to understand it. I will never be able to understand calculus and trigonometry. But I can understand advanced doctrine, but I have to learn the basics first and build upon that line upon line, precept upon precept. So in the grace learning spiral, we start off by understanding the mentality of the soul. So we describe that with a circle, and that is the noose. The Greek word is noose, and this just refers to the mind of man. At the very core of his thinking is what the Bible refers to as the cardia, the heart. Heart is never used in the Scripture to refer to the physiological blood pump in the chest, but it is always used metaphorically to refer to that center the core of an issue, the core of thought. And so it is the core of our thinking, the very, uh, the very core of what we believe. Now what happens is the pastor teacher comes along, or an evangelist, comes along and communicates the word, teaches the word line upon line, verse by verse. It was interesting last night. Yesterday I performed a wedding. You don't, and, and I normally, my normal policy is I, unless I really know the people, I don't go to the don't go to rehearsal dinners and I don't go to receptions afterwards and I don't go to reception dinners because I get trapped like I did last night and it goes till from three in the afternoon until ten o'clock at night and then I'm shot the next morning on Sunday and I don't like to do that. So, but that happened yesterday and I and I had made the uh, decision to to go because the the folks go to the church and and I needed to get to know them a little more and I just made that decision. But and I. I after I thought about it, I thought, gosh, why did I do that? You know, I may just never do this, never go to these things. But I figured that God had some reason for it. So I'm seated at a table, and I'm sitting with some guy who's a next-door neighbor of the of the uh, uh, bride's father. And we're talking, and it turns out he's, he's a believer, and he says, he's a retired school teacher, lives down in Long Island. And he said, found out I was a pastor. He said, I, we, we talked about this and that in churches and some of the newer things that are going on in churches, and we were in agreement on some of these things, and, and he mentioned some big charismatic church down in Houston because he had been down there, and he said, I just don't understand all this stuff. You know, when they're praying, everybody's jumping up and down and moving. It's distracting. Why do churches do all this? And then he said, why don't pastors just get in the pulpit and teach the Bible verse by verse, word for word from the original languages? Then I knew while I was why I was there. So we'll be sending him tapes in the next uh, couple of weeks because he's pretty much given up on just going to church anywhere because he can't find anybody that does that. And that's unfortunately that's true for everybody. So you have a pastor teacher who comes along and teaches the word um, verse by verse, word from word from the original languages. But it, that's not all there is to it. We all have the Holy Spirit, and when we're filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit is functioning in our life in terms of helping us understand the Word. The Holy Spirit then, under the concept of the filling of the Holy Spirit, because He's filling us with God's Word, He makes the Word understandable. He doesn't understand it for you. He, he, let's use a real simple example. He gives you the chewing gum and the dentures so that you can chew the chewing gum, but he's not going to chew the chewing gum for you. Okay? See, most people get this idea that when the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, that that means that I'm just instantly going to understand it. No, that's why in the Old Testament you have that word meditate. Meditate on the word day and night. Think about it. You have to put these things together. This is not at the exclusion of human thinking ability. God is not going to do your thinking for you. That's your responsibility. But God the Holy Spirit is going to make every doctrine in Scripture um, uh, understandable. That's when you have to exercise your volition to try to understand it, to study it, to take notes, to go home, listen to the tape three or four or five or six or 20 times. 
you know, take notes, ask questions, come back and say, well, you know, I really didn't understand this. Can you explain it again? And, um, and I'll do my best. But it's understandable. So you have to exercise your volition to understand it. Now, if you're negative, you're just going to sit there and you're going to maybe uh, take a lot of notes and never really know what they mean. And we've all run into people like this, and I have in doctrinal churches where they picked up all the vocabulary, but they don't have a clue what it means. And see, I would you don't really understand vocabulary of anything unless you can put it in your own words. Now, we all start in any learning situation by learning the vocabulary and, and imitating our teacher. But then over time, as we understand the concepts, we're able to put them in our own frame of reference. So the person who's negative just takes a lot of notes but never really assimilates it. The person who is positive takes notes, studies them, and meditates on those concepts until that thinking becomes their thinking. They, and the next stage is that becomes gnosis. That's academic knowledge. See, you don't really know it even academically if you don't understand it. Just because you can state it back to somebody, regurgitate something on a, on a test, doesn't mean it's even academic knowledge. I mean, you just think back about those biology tests you had when you were in high school, and you just memorized a lot of data and a lot of facts and spewed them back out, and you were able to uh, write in the names of all the muscle groups and write in the names of all the, all the bones and the skeleton, but today you don't remember it, and you never understood it, but you passed the test. See, that's, uh, that's not understandable, but ac- real academic knowledge is understood, but that's all it is, and the Bible calls it gnosis. Then you have to use your volition again. Now that you really understand what the Scripture is saying, you have to believe it. And when you believe it and that becomes what you believe, that's what you're, you understand and that's what tr- you know to be true, then God the Holy Spirit puts that into that innermost part of your thinking, the cardia, where it becomes epinosis, which is usable spiritual knowledge. Notice it's usable. That's a term of potentiality. It doesn't mean you automatically use it or under the filling of the Holy Spirit you'll automatically apply it. What it means is you can. Now you have to exercise your volition a third time when you have an opportunity to apply it. So those are the three, those, that's the whole process, and you have to exercise your volition three times, first to understand it, secondly to, to believe it, and third to apply that which is uh, understandable. Now, that's what 1 Corinthians 2.15 goes on to say. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Now, we immediately get into a trap here, as some people do, because they think that the all things refers to, like, all things in life, every issue I face in life, no matter how difficult the circumstance, no matter what the decision is, I'm going to be able to, to understand what God's will is here. That's not what this is saying. Remember, going back to verse 9, the all things refers to to what has been revealed in Scripture. So the passage says, He who is spiritual, that is, he who is regenerate, appraises all things. And that all things is appraises the Scripture. Now, the word translated appraise is the Greek word anakrino. Anakrino, and anakrino means to examine a witness, to interrogate, or determine, or to determine the meaning of something. So we could translate that, he who is spiritual, that is the regenerate man instead of the unregenerate man, is able to determine the meaning of Scripture. That fits the context. He just got through saying in verse 14 that the natural man, the soulish man, cannot understand the things. But the spiritual person, that is the regenerate person, is able to determine the meaning of the things, the revelation. So that's the concept. And then it goes on to say, but he, in, con- in, in contrast, is appraised, that is, uh, understood, or uh, the meaning of himself is not understood by any man. In other words, the unbeliever is not going to be able to understand the believer. Why do you do things the way you do, Christian? How, why do you think the way you do? I just don't understand it. The, un, the believer is always going to be an enigma at some level to the unbeliever. That's why Scripture is so clear when it says that we are not to have fellowship light with darkness. For what fellowship has, has light with darkness? That, that believers and unbelievers are not to be unequally yoked, and that specifically has application in marriage. That one of the, that, that, 
I've seen this happen time and time again when a believer and an unbeliever uh, get married that the the believer has so much trouble and they never reach a level of, of that level of intimacy or happiness or joy in a marriage that God intended because that unbeliever can't understand the believer. There's always going to be a, 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 a an area that unbeliever can't go to and there's something missing in that in that marriage. And it will eventually become a, a root of some difficulty and some problem simply because the unbeliever does not uh, understand the believer. Then we go on to verse 16 and we read, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? It's a rhetorical question indicating that that who's really known God? Who's known? Who among men has known the mind or the thinking of God? And that, of course, goes back to the fact that it is the Holy Spirit in verse 10 that searches all things and the deep things of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? You know, no man can instruct God. And then we have the last statement, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, that is a phenomenal statement there at the end of the passage, but we have the mind of Christ. We believers have the mind of Christ, and the word translated mind, there is the word noose. We have the mind, the noose of Christ. We have the thinking of Christ. We know God's opinion, God's view of everything. That's why I call it divine viewpoint. The scriptures present one clear, clear, unified view of uh, from God of what he thinks about and his view on everything he created. It is the principle that if if the God of the Bible exists, then the God of the Bible is the one who defines and determines what reality is, and he has informed us of the nature of that reality. Second Peter 1.3 says he has told us everything related to life and godliness. Now, to the unbeliever, this is an incredible claim that smacks of arrogance. Modern man thinks that this, who are you to claim that you know what God thinks? Well, see, I'm not claiming I know what God thinks. I'm saying that the Bible tells us what God thinks. See, it's not me. I'm supposed to submit to this book as much as you're supposed to submit to this book. It's not my opinion it's not my viewpoint. I've had to change many of my opinions and viewpoints and ideas over the years in order to conform them to what the Word of God says. That's what the Christian life is all about. We are to to conform our thinking to the Word of God. That is not arrogance. Christians are not saying, I have the mind of Christ and you don't, nah, 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 nah. We are saying that God has revealed himself to man and that understanding the thinking of God and God's viewpoint is available to every human being. It doesn't matter whether you're an African, whether you're an Asian, whether you're European. None of those factors matter. God has revealed it to everybody, and he has made it available to us and understandable to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, the unbeliever can't understand it. That's the next question we have to go to. If, if first verse 14 indicates the unbeliever can't understand the things of God, how does the unbeliever even understand the gospel. And we'll come back and look at that next time because I want to uh, address various implications from this passage for witnessing. What we've studied in 1 Corinthians 2, and I (coughs) covered the doctrine of witnessing back around verse 5 or 6, but what this passage has to say is profound in terms of how we witness to unbelievers and what the issues are. And then I want to conclude by giving you not a not a canned approach, but a an approach to witnessing. I think for many people have problems witnessing for, for various problems. You interview most people, they're, they either feel inadequate or they're afraid of rejection. They're afraid they're going to offend somebody. And um, they really don't know. Sometimes we just don't know, how do I get started? What question do I ask to, to get the ball rolling? And we want a witness. We feel like this is a great opportunity. The person's ready, but, but how do I start? So I want to go over just some ideas about, uh, real practical ideas about how we can go about witnessing. So we'll uh, cover that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. 
Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be to be reminded that this is your word and that you have spoken to us. You are not a God who is obscure, a God who is out there in just some sort of abstract uh, existence that uh, has left us guessing, but you are a God who created us and who desires to have a relationship with us and who has clearly communicated to us how that can take place. But the problem that man has is a basic problem of knowledge, and it's a result of sin. It's a knowledge problem that can't be divorced from the ethical problem. Because we are sinners, we, we have been separated from you. Man is spiritually dead. Yet you have sent your son to communicate yourself to us. You sent your son to die on the cross, that, that he died as a substitute for our sins, that we can have eternal life by simply faith alone in Christ alone. You've also given us a, the Holy Spirit who makes that truth clear to us that we can understand the basic message of the gospel as unbelievers. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes that clear. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make this, take this time to make this sure and certain by simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. It's a free gift. Anybody can do it. Anybody can accept that free gift. And it's done simply by trusting in Christ alone, relying upon him alone, his death, burial, and resurrection, that he died as our substitute, and through him there is eternal life. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we'd be challenged in our own thinking, understanding reality as you have defined it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.